May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your first day on the job, a new job. You have no idea how things work in this place, this company. You don't really, you know what you what you do and what your specialty is, but you really don't know what's going to happen. You expect that on your first day, you're probably going to go to HR. You're going to watch some videos. They're going to tell you about being sensitive to people and the like. Um, you're going to fill out tax forms. You're going to do all the things that kind of get you ready to work in the company. But let's just say it's your first really adult job, you know, your first grown-up job, maybe your first um, post-university, maybe post-high school, whatever it is, and you have lots of ideas about the field. I mean, that's why they hired you, because you have lots of good ideas. But you have no idea how this particular company works. You have no idea what the culture's like, because everyone is different. Every culture is unique, and so you know you know that this is going to be a different thing. You know that there are there's a lot that you know, but you also know there's a lot that you don't know. And if you're really smart, you know that there's a lot that you don't know that you don't know. That there are things out there still that you have to discover. So how do you function in an environment like this? How how do you walk into a new environment like this? Well, you you would tell somebody if you're giving them advice, you know, pay attention to your senses. You know, Look around, keep your ears open, your mouth shut, you know, kind of take in the vibe. See who people listen to. Who do they fear? Who's in charge? May not be the same person. You know, find out what's going on. Um, find the person who's nice. You know, that, that you really don't have to be told that. You know, we, we find that kind person who kind of gives you the inside scoop and we cling to them like a preschooler, right? You know, okay, hold on tight because we want to know this person. But what you do mostly is do what you're told, right? Somebody comes to you and says, here, take this to the mailroom. You don't say, hey, I'm in marketing. You know, you don't, uh, hey, I, 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 no, you, you don't, you're like, oh, of course. Yeah, and you take it and you go. You know, two years later, same person comes up and says, here, take this mailroom. And you're like, take it yourself, Ralph. You're not my boss. You know, you, you bark back, but, but not on day one. On day one, you're obedient. You know, you're you're eager. You want to be liked. It doesn't matter what you do, whether you're a computer whiz or you're a scientist or a marketing expert. You want to be liked, and so you want to be humble and obedient. And that's what day one is like. Day one is marked by humility and obedience. Fast forward 10 or 20 years. You're the Ralph who gives somebody, the new person, the, the thing to take to the mailroom, you know? Hopefully, maybe you're the Rebecca who's nice and says, Ralph's a jerk, don't listen to that guy. Um, the veterans know what's going on, right? The veterans know the lay of the land. They know how things operate. They know the culture. And they know how to pull rank, too, don't they? You're not my boss. Don't tell me what to do. Um, uh, stop telling me what to do. Like you're, you know, I don't have to listen to you. Sometimes you can even get in trouble by listening to the wrong person, right? You do something and your actual boss says, why are you doing that? And you say, well, because Ralph told me to do it. Ralph's not your boss. What are you doing listening to Ralph? Ralph is such a jerk. I'm so glad there's no Ralph here. You know, if your name is Ralph, I am so sorry. Um, you know, why are you listening to that person? 
Listen to the person who's in charge. Be obedient to that person. That's the difference between the veteran and the rookie, really, isn't it? The veteran knows to whom they should ignore and to whom they should be obedient. In the, um, in the Bible lessons today, the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson, we have two different temptation stories. They're different temptation stories. Um, the one is of our first parents, their innocency in the Garden of Eden. The second temptation story, of course, is the story of Jesus, tempted by the devil. He is called Diabolos in Greek, um, the, 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 the devil, the, the devilish one, also Satanas in, in, in later in the same passage. The Bible speaks often of the devil or the Satan, also called the serpent in the, the Old Testament passage, but not as often as you might think. In the New Testament, for instance, 38 times the devil is mentioned, um, about as many 36 occurrences of the Satan. And sometimes they're really closely connected, like they are in today's passage of Jesus, who's tempted by the devil, Matthew says. Later, Jesus addresses him, go away from me, Satan. So there's this, um, this overlap and interplay of, of, the, of the, the, the terminology. The story of how the devil came to be is not found in the Bible. You perhaps have heard stories, fallen angels and the like. Um, uh, there was some uh, medieval and even before that some Second Temple, some early first century writings, um, the Book of Enoch and in the medieval period, the Divine Comedy by Dante, these um, stories about devils and devilish ones and fallen angels. But those are all foreign to the canon of Scripture. The Bible just assumes the Satan, the devil's existence. He shows up. We're not told from whence he came or where he goes. He, he shows up and he's gone. Um, his single job seems to be to try to thwart the plan of God by destroying humanity. And so the story of Genesis, we have this couple in a garden and the serpent appears. The, the, the couple are placed in the garden, we're told, um, to work and to keep it. I wish I could spend time here because this is a really different sermon, though. But their job is to work and to keep the land. Working seems pretty obvious, right? To cultivate or whatever. But the word to keep is to protect. It actually is used of bodyguarding. That the humans are placed in the, in, uh, into the garden not just to work it and cultivate it, but literally to guard it. And in this paradise situation, they have one prohibition. There is law even in paradise. Just a simple one law. Eat anything from any of these trees that you want, except this one. Do not eat from this tree. Of course, our minds, why you put it there? Why would you put a tree there if you don't want them to eat from it? It seems like you're setting them up for failure, aren't you? I think the answer is a rather simple one. It took me a long time to discover it, but I think this is right. It is placed there as a gift. There's no way that the humans can demonstrate their love for God apart from obedience. They have an opportunity to choose to do good. They have an opportunity to choose to trust God. And the opportunity would not exist without the law. So the law is given to them as a gift to love. And here it is, love. But you know the story. One day a tempter arrives and he begins... A conversation with a woman. I think the fact that he begins this conversation with a woman is fascinating. Because we find out when they finally do um, eat from this tree, 
that her husband has been there all along. Satan, the serpent, engages the woman in conversation. She finally makes a decision. She takes and she eats. And did you hear it? And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he also ate. But the story is that the, that the serpent appears, and what does he do? He begins to attack God's character. He lays an attack on the character of God. Did God really say? Is it possible that he said? And what does the woman do? She rushes to defend God's honor. No, no, it's not like that at all. We're allowed to eat from any of the trees, just not this one. The serpent tweaks his little trap. God is stingy. God is fearful. God is mean. God cannot be trusted. He doesn't really like you. He knows that when you eat of this, you'll be like him, and he's afraid of that. And it seems like a very reasonable argument. And Walter Brueggemann points out that this is the first time in, in Scripture that theology exactly exists, that, that people enter into a theological dialogue. God is spoken about. He is objectified outside. They're talking about God. They're not talking with God. And this trap is set, and you know what happens. They take, they eat. Jesus' um, uh, temptation narrative is a little different, but somewhat similar. Instead of attacking the character of God, this time the tempter comes and attacks Jesus' own character. If you really are who you say you are, Twice, if you are really, if you're really, you could make bread. If you are really who you say you are, you could call upon the angels and they'll save you. If that's really who you are. And if you really came to save the world, I'll give you a simple solution. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Jesus does not enter into abstract theology with the devil, though, does he? He doesn't get in an argument. He doesn't theologize about God. Instead, what does he do? Three times the same thing. It is written. It is written, it is written. He places his behavior below the authority of the, of the word of God. This is what scripture says, this is what I'll do. I like Luke's version of this. You know, the same story appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Mark both end the same way, um, and the angels come and they minister to Jesus after the third. The devil leaves and the angels arrive. Luke says... And, and the devil left him until an opportune time. He's coming back. He's going he's gonna to make another run at this thing, right? We should see the contrast and the comparisons. Um, the human couple in paradise, they have every opportunity to succeed and they fail. Jesus, all alone in the wilderness by himself, every expectation of failure and yet he succeeds. Lots of other differences and way to contrast and compare them, but ultimately it's about this. St. Paul says it in his, his lesson we heard this morning. It's about obedience. It's about obedience. The human couple in paradise were disobedient, and Jesus was obedient. He, he followed the word of God. He placed himself under the authority of the word of God. Left to my own reason, my own rationalization, you'd be surprised at how clever I can be. Especially when it comes to doing things that I know I shouldn't do. I mean little things like 
you know, there's only three Oreos left in the bag anyway. You know, I might as well just get rid of them. You know, I, I mean, they're going to go stale. It'll be a waste of money. It's terrible. We shouldn't let, the, you know, there are people dying of starvation in this world, and these Oreos are right here. If I can do that with an Oreo, imagine what I can do with something more important, you know, something grander. I'm guessing that you're pretty clever too. That you too know ways to sort of get around and rationalize. Why do we fail so often in our lives? It's about obedience. It's about simple obedience, about doing the will of God. The only way to defeat the enemy in our lives is not by reasoning with him. It is by obedience, just simply obeying. Do you want happiness? Do you want peace? Do you want tranquility in your life? It will not come about by your reason. It will come about by obedience. You do not need a Ph.D. in religion in order to be a, a, a happy, a, a fulfilled, a, a, a Christian with, with, um, with a great sense of purpose and meaning in life. In fact, if anything, it might actually work against all those things. Childlike obedience is all that we need. So we enter into Lent. We bring out the Ten Commandments. We, we remind ourselves every week, what are these commandments? Week after week. And we remind ourselves that we failed to keep them. We enter into Lent having heard from our Lord's Sermon on the Mount throughout Epiphany. This is a way to live. Listen, not as a, as a law against us to harm us, but as a gift to us. As a blessing. The tree was placed in the garden as an opportunity to learn to love. And this, this ethic that Christ gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, the same thing. Turning from anger. Oh, but you know what? You don't know what she said to me. Okay? Turn from your anger. Love your enemy. I'm not loving them. You know what they did. You know what those people are like. Love your enemies. Pray for those who use you. Do good to those who would harm you. Don't use people. Don't objectify human beings. Oh, well, you know. They wanted it. They put themselves in that place. No. Children, and not even children, adults, honor your parents. Honor your mother and father. Honor in Hebrew, kavod. It means weight. Give them their due weight. Or sometimes when parents are wrong. <laughs> I know that. But giving due weight is considering and loving and caring for. Here's one. Keep the Sabbath day. Whew. Man, you know, that's a. it's not just about coming to church on Sunday. It's about scheduling our week. Do you realize how, how, how unnecessary a Sabbath day is in any part of the, the world? There's no reason for a seven-day week. We could have a 12-day week, a 14-day week. In the medieval times, they realized this, and they went to a 10-day week, and it nearly crushed people. They, it was rioting. No, seven. Why do we need seven days? We need seven days because this is the way that God designed us. And to take one day and make it holy. Now, I'm not saying you can't have fun, or, you know, whatever. I, I know there are all kinds of things that have been written about that. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we organize our time around God and keeping the Sabbath day holy is one of them. Protecting our marriages, living generously with other people. Oh, but you know, and all these things, all we have to do is just be reasonable. It would just, just be reasonable. No, no, not be reasonable. Be obedient. 
This is the call of Christ upon our lives. Be obedient. Why? Because it's for our good. Not for anybody else's. I heard this testimony one time of this missionary, this woman. Her name was um, Darlene Rose. And she went to, um, to Papua New Guinea just before the Second World War. Just before she went to Papua New Guinea, she and her husband were, were married in, in Iowa. And then they together went out uh, to Papua New Guinea. And they spent a year, their first year, um, and then they celebrated their first year anniversary. And just a few days after that anniversary, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And then just a few months later, they invaded Papua New Guinea and, and took the island quickly with no problem. And Darlene's husband was placed into a truck with other male POWs. They separated the men and the women. And, um, and her, his last words to her, he, he looked at her from the truck and he said, Don't worry, dear. God will never leave us or forsake us. And they drove away with him. And it's the last time she ever saw him. And her stories, that she, time and memory do not serve me to give, you, you know, Google her. Find a, find a copy of this, this testimony and listen to it. It'll be one of the best hours you've ever spent in your life. But I remember this one story. She had been in this concentration camp and she had been, you know, brutally treated for years. And, and it's at the end and, and she's, um, she's out in this yard and they're working or doing whatever it is they're, they're told. And she looks up and she hears airplanes coming. And, and as the airplanes get closer, she realizes they're American planes. And she is thrilled. She is thrilled. They are going to be liberated. She's thrilled for about 30 seconds and all of a sudden she sees and hears these bombs dropping from these planes. And they're coming directly at the camp where she is. And she does what everybody does. Everybody scurries and runs. You know, they're looking for shelter. And, and Darlene says that she ran and she, she jumped in this foxhole that had been there. And there was a, a mattress. And she pulled the mattress over her head and she's in a foxhole. Bombs are dropping everywhere. And she says, inwardly, I heard the Lord say to me, do you remember that Bible you borrowed? That woman needs that Bible. You need to go get that now. And she says, I said to myself and to the Lord, I will. If I live through this, I will get her Bible back to her. And she said the Lord spoke to her heart and said, no, you need to get it now. She jumps out of this, this foxhole, runs through this, this yard. Bombs are dropping everywhere. She runs into the dormitory. There on her dresser, she grabs the Bible. And she hears the last bomb drop as she turns and she goes back out, going to run back to her, her, her foxhole. And there it is, right across the yard, with a massive bomb in it, the mattress that was covering her on fire. Instant obedience. She determined early in her life, at 10 years of age, she determined that God had called her to be a missionary and that she was going to live every day with instant obedience to him. The devil is a master manipulator. His plot is to kill and to steal and to destroy. And God's plan is to give us life and to give it more abundantly. The only thing that matters is who will we obey. One road leads to happiness, one to destruction. Which road do you want to walk down? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.